0: The following is a presentation of Highlands Church, helping de-churched people become more fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ. For more information, visit us at highlandsadventure.org. Good morning. I hope you all enjoyed our very wet weekend and, and the days leading up to that. I know we did. Uh, let me start with a question. Do you ever daydream? Do you ever dream maybe when the winter olympics were on maybe maybe you dreamt of winning a gold medal and standing on that that medal stand and singing the national anthem and and coming home and having the gold medal around your your neck as you sat and were interviewed by Jimmy Fallon and another late night talk show host or, or maybe you uh you Tonight, the Oscars are happening, right? Maybe you daydream of being on the red carpet, being the star of an upcoming summer blockbuster and and having your picture taken and and being right next to your your boyfriend or your girlfriend who happens to be an A-list celebrity right there with you. Maybe that's something you dream of. Or maybe you dream of being a doctor a scientist, somebody who discovers a cure to a disease, and getting your picture plastered on the cover of every magazine and having everybody really excited about who you are and what you've done. Why do we daydream? Well, one reason, I believe, is that we want to be significant. We want our lives to matter. The Oxford Dictionary defines the word significant in this way sufficiently great or important to be worthy of attention. I think most of us want to be sufficiently great or important to be worthy of attention. And so we dream. We dream of making it big, of being famous, of becoming well-known, leaving our mark. If you dream of significance, well, then you've come to the right place. Because for the next seven weeks here at Highlands, we're going to be all about significance. This Wednesday, we begin our significant sacrifice. That's this Wednesday, Ash Wednesday, is is when we start. I want to make sure we're all clear on that. And we're asking people, asking everybody to give up something of significance to us for those 40 days leading up to Easter, and then to put that money aside that we would have spent on, on that thing, and we're going to collect it all on April 13th on Palm Sunday here at the church, whatever you give up is going to make a significant impact in the lives of other people. Richard's giving up wine, right? Some people may give up coffee or chocolate. Some people may stop shopping at a particular store that they, that they just can't do without uh, for the next 40 days. I was going to give up shaving so I could look like Zach. My wife totally vetoed that, though. So so I'll be giving up something else that actually will provide a little bit more money. That will be lunches out during the week. Um, and, and really looking to save some money that way. And then all of that money is going to be donated to LifeWater. You see the pictures all over the, the barn here. We get to see pictures of, of kids who've been affected by the life-giving resources that LifeWater has to give. They give clean water, they give sanitation, and they give hy- gifts of hygiene to people in the, the developing world. And if you were here last week and you got to hear Sada talk about it, it's really quite astounding, the life change that's happening. About five weeks ago, some of the staff and spouses went to a life water dinner, and we learned there that some wells can be built with resources just about $6,000 worth of resources. And so, what we give up during this significant sacrifice could literally change an entire community. And so, we're really excited about that. Well, during this time of significance, and while we're participating in the significant sacrifice, We are going to have a sermon series called, you guessed it, Significance. We believe that Jesus of Nazareth lived the most significant life the world has ever known. And so we want to learn from him. We want to look at his life and see what it can teach us about a life of significance. And as we do, we're going to find out that it comes not in time spent on the red carpet or receiving awards, but it comes through things like humility and empathy, and service. We're going to look at Jesus' life through the eyes of one of his closest disciples, the Apostle John, the author of the book of John in the New Testament. In fact, everything that we do is going to be from the book of John these seven weeks. Your neighborhood life groups, not too late to sign up in the cafe after the service today for a neighborhood life group, those will be looking at passages in John, The devotions that we give out to those who want those, those are from the book of John. We want to immerse ourselves in this great story of Jesus through the eyes of John and see what it can teach us about the life of significance. And we're going to begin today in John chapter 1. We're going to read through the first 14 verses in John's gospel. And uh, as I read them, it's going to be really important to know that when John talks about the word... He's talking about God, the Son, Jesus Christ. And it's really important to understand that as we go into it. I'm going to kind of read through this and pause along the way and make some comments. So let's start in John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him. And without him, not one thing came into being. What has come into being in him was life, and the life was the light of all people. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not overcome it. So John begins by saying, in the beginning. You know, each of the four gospels begin at different places in history. Mark pretty much begins at a time when Jesus was already an adult, And then there's Luke, who begins about three decades before that, before Christ was even born, and he tells the story of his relatives, the birth of his his cousin, John the Baptist, who we're going to hear about in just a minute. He talks about the shepherds and the angels. And then there's Matthew, who goes back even further. Matthew starts with this huge genealogy linking Jesus to the entire history of the nation, Of Israel, all the way back to Abraham. But John goes back even further still. In the beginning, he says, a clear reference to the first words in the Old Testament, which say, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In fact, John uses the exact same Greek phrase when he writes his book, En Arche is the phrase, as was used in the Septuagint, which was the Greek version of the Old Testament that was commonly used in John's day. He is clearly trying to link this to creation. So what's he saying? He's saying that this word, this word that he's writing about, is the same word that spoke creation into being, that everything came into being, was created through him. So John's gospel has this cosmic beginning. It goes back to the creation of the world. If you were here during the Epic series, it was about two months ago I, I gave the talk on creation. If you were here, you'll remember the video that we showed that, that showed a lot of the different objects in our universe. It started with the moon, and then it just kept getting bigger. It went from the moon to Mercury to Mars. Eventually it switched from planets planets. To stars, and they kept getting bigger and bigger and bigger until we got to that star VY Canis Majoris, the largest known star, a star that has a diameter of 2.4 billion kilometers. A star so big that if you were in a passenger airplane traveling along the surface at 560 miles per hour, if you could do such a thing, it would take you 11 hundred years to circle at one time. The person who John is talking about, the Word, is the one who made all of that. And that's pretty significant. So John begins his gospel by showing how immeasurably significant Jesus is. And then he takes a few verses with kind of, kind of a little aside and talks about somebody else of great significance. Another person named John We know him as John the Baptist. And he says this, There was a man sent from God, this is verse 6, whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify to the light, so that all might believe through him. He himself was not the light, but he came to testify to the light. The true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. Now, it's been suggested that John the Apostle was a disciple of John the Baptist before Jesus came onto the scene. And though John was a great man, John the Baptist was a great man to John the Apostle, living as good a life as anybody the world had ever known up to that point, John knew that his mentor was inferior to Christ. John the Baptist was merely somebody who pointed to the light. He was not the light himself. And and John the Baptist himself would say that he was not worthy to untie the sandals of the one who was coming after him. So now having established the superiority of the divine word, the author of the gospel continues, and he says this in verse 9, the true light which enlightened the world's, I'm sorry, the true light which enlightens everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world came into being through him. Yet the world did not know him. He came to what was his own, and his own people did not accept him. But to all who received him, who believed in his name, he gave the power to become children of God." who were born not of blood or of the will of the flesh or of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and lived among us. And we have seen his glory, the glory of a father's only son, full of grace and truth. This is God's word for us this morning. And now having read it all, let's pray. Gracious Lord, we thank you for your word, your word written, and your word that took on flesh and lived among us. Lord, as we talk a little bit more about that word this morning, I pray that you would help us to understand it, give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and hearts to receive your word for us today. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to tell a story that was written by Danish philosopher Soren Kierkegaard. It's about a king and a maiden. And this is the story that he wrote. Suppose there was a king who loved a humble maiden. The king was like no other king. Every statesman trembled before his power. No one dared breathe a word against him, for he had the strength to crush all opponents. And yet this mighty king was melted, melted by love for a humble maiden who lived in a poor village in his kingdom. How could he declare his love for her? In an odd sort of way, his kingliness tied his hands. If he brought her to the palace and crowned her head with jewels and clothed her body with royal robes, she would surely not resist. No one dared resist him. But would she love him? She would say she loved him, of course, but would she truly Or would she live with him in fear, nursing a private grief for the life she had left behind? Would she be happy at his side? How could he be sure? If he rode to her forest cottage in his royal carriage with an armed escort waving bright banners, that too would overwhelm her. But he did not want a cringing subject. He wanted a lover, an equal. He wanted her to forget that he was a king and she a humble maiden. And to let shared love cross the gulf between them. For it is only in love that the unequal can be made equal. The king convinced he could not elevate the maiden without crushing her freedom, resolved to descend to her. Clothed as a beggar, he approached her cottage with a worn cloak fluttering loose about him. This was not just a disguise. The king took on a totally new identity. He renounced his love, and he renounced his throne, sorry, to declare his love and to win hers. In this story, the person in the place of significance and power leaves that all behind in order to pursue the love of his life. The king leaves his crown, he leaves his throne, he relinquishes his scepter, and he becomes a peasant. He scratches out a living in the dirt and he dresses in rags. Well, this is exactly what Christ did for us when he became flesh and made his dwelling among us. And he did it because he loves us. He did it to pursue us. John 1 tells us that God is not just some high and mighty king. He is somebody who loves us enough to come and be with us, to be present with human beings. And as we will see throughout this series, we're going to see that he was present with humans even at the most difficult times. For Christ, being present in the world meant that he would encounter darkness. John talks about it, the darkness that he would encounter. And in his time on earth, he would have to face the harsh realities of this world, the ugly underbelly, those things that happen in the shadows trying to hide from everything else, the pain and the loss. He couldn't avoid it. He chose not to avoid it. And that teaches us a little something about the heart of God, doesn't it? Being present in our world also meant that he would have to face rejection. He would have to face rejection by the world at large and by his own people, the nation of Israel, John gives us these ironic and tragic lines. He was in the world, and the world came into being through him. Yet, the world did not know him. He came to what was his own, and his own people did not accept him. Put yourselves in his shoes for just a minute. You give up so much to be with the person that you love, with the people that you love the ones that you created, and they reject you. So why would he come to a world filled with darkness that he knew would reject him? Well, for one thing, he knew that he had a light that could cut through the deepest darkness, and the darkness did not overcome it. He came because he knew that though some would reject him, Others would receive him, and in receiving him, they would win the opportunity to become children of God and heirs of God's kingdom far better than any earthly kingdom we have ever imagined. What a beautiful thing Christ has done for us! And so, the eternal God, through whom all things were created, came to earth. He took up residence here. He came to a world filled with darkness, a world that would, that would not receive him, that would reject him. But he overcame it all. So he was significant, first of all, because of who he was. He was God in human flesh. But he was also significant because of how he lived among us, with us. He didn't have to be present with his people But he chose to be. He chose to have a ministry of presence. And he wants us to follow that lead. He wants us to look for opportunities to have a ministry of presence with other people. You know, sometimes the most significant thing that we can do in our lives is show up. To show up in good times and in bad in times of celebration and times of pain, on days of joy and on days that are completely drab and dull. Some of the most loving things that people have ever done for me in my life, and I bet this is true for you and yours as well, is they just showed up. They showed up with me at the emergency room. They showed up with me at a time where I just needed somebody to listen they showed up when there was work to be done around my house. They showed up. I wonder if you are thinking of people in your own life who have shown up at important times. Significance can come from the smallest act of showing up in a time of need. Who could use the ministry of your presence right now? I want to look at one more aspect of this passage because the ministry of your presence will be so much greater if you follow the lead of Christ and if you do what he did. John tells us that when the word became flesh, that he was full of grace and truth. I can't tell you how important these two words are for anybody wanting to have a ministry of presence if you want to be significant, these are two words that you should get comfortable with and, and really begin to understand it and live out in your life. And we need them both. Most of the misinformation about Christ in our world, I'm going to say, is a result of people trying to live out one of these without the other. Have you ever tried to live out one of these without the other? Let me, let me show you what happens. Truth without grace can be harsh. Harsh. This is not only true in this context, but it's also true in the dating world. Any guy who has ever asked out a girl before has faced the possibility of rejection. There's always a chance that she could say no, right? Now, there are many ways that she could say no. There is the truth without grace version, which goes something like, even if you were the last man on earth... And all of the human race, depending on us, being together. I would not go out with you. That's the truth without grace version. Then there's the truth and grace version that says, you know, you seem like a really great guy. And I'm sure that you are going to make some girl really happy someday. But the two of us, I just don't see it being a good fit. Now, both messages get the truth across. (laughs) She's not interested, dude. (laughs) But one is much harsher than the other, isn't it? Well, when it comes to living out a ministry of presence in our world, truth without grace is not only harsh, but but it can also lead to self-righteousness, judgmentalism, and legalism. When we preach at people without loving them, when we stand up on a soapbox and we yell at them, even if we're reading Scripture, when we're yelling at them, and we may technically be in their presence, but we are doing much more often to repel them than we are to point them towards Christ. Truth without grace can be ugly and harsh. But there's another side of the coin, and it's one that is equally deficient. It's grace without truth. Now, grace is one of the most beautiful words in the English language. Grace is the reason I am a pastor, and it's the reason I have hope. Grace receives me with open arms, even when I am completely unworthy, and it makes me right with God when I don't deserve it. I would be lost without grace. But grace cannot be separated from truth. Grace without truth leads us to a world where Kind of like where we live today, where every version of truth is considered equally valid. And that sounds really, really nice. It sounds accommodating. It, that means truth starts with me, and I really like that. <laughs> but what if I'm not the greatest authority on what is true? What if there's a greater authority? Let's assume for a minute that Jesus Christ is actually who he says he is, that he is God in human form, that he is the one who created everything we see and set up all the laws of the universe. If that's who he really is, then wouldn't he be uniquely qualified to tell us what's real and what's true, to tell us why things are the way that they are? Wouldn't he be more qualified than anybody else? Shouldn't I listen to him more than I listen to some celebrity receiving an award tonight or to a politician or to some human philosopher? Wouldn't his truth hold more weight than anybody else's subjective truth? Truth matters. And the Bible teaches a unique story about God and humanity. It teaches us that that God made a way for broken humans to be put back into a right relationship with God. And that way is the cross of Christ. You know, truth actually gives much more weight to grace. Because when you begin to understand the grace that God has revealed to us, truth shows us that grace is initiated by God himself. And this God who would take on human form and live among us And then it washes away every wrong we've ever done. And that makes grace more meaningful, I believe. Jesus was the most grace-filled person that ever walked the planet Earth. Yet he did not sacrifice truth in order to reach people in grace. So as we show up in people's lives as we have this ministry of presence, being there when people need us, being there to celebrate and being there to cry along somebody else, as we have this ministry of presence, let's be people of grace. Let's be forgiving and merciful and kind and compassionate and welcoming. And let's also live in a way that points other people to the truth, the truth that we have a God who did not stay in heaven, but came to earth to bring us back to him. Let's live in that knowledge and that good news. As I close this morning, I want to ask you to bow your heads and close your eyes. And I want to ask you a few questions. First, are you aware of the presence of Christ in your life? If not, in this time, I want you to ask God to reveal where He is present, where Christ is present in your life right now. And as you become aware of that presence of Christ in your life, I want to ask the question again, who in your life could use the ministry of your presence? What does that presence look like? Lord, we thank you this morning that you are filled with grace and truth, that you are the God who who comes and lives among us, that dwells here on earth, that faces darkness, that even faces rejection. Lord, help us to realize that you did that because you love us, to pursue us. Lord, help us to know in our own lives where you are present with us even now. May we get strength from that, May we find peace and joy and hope. And Lord, help us since you have given that to us, the ministry of your presence. May we then go out and have that ministry with others. We ask this in the powerful name of the Word who became flesh and among us. Amen. a presentation of Highlands Church, helping dechurched people become more fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ. For more information, visit us at highlandsadventure.org.